I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This is a special episode of Truth of the Matter. It's a crossover with the Impossible State podcast that I do with my colleague, Dr. Victor Cha, our Korea chair and a senior VP at CSIS. We talked about North Korea's burgeoning missile threat. Today on The Impossible State, we're joined by Dr. Victor Cha, my co-host on the podcast. Victor is a senior vice president at CSIS and our Korea chair. We're also joined by Tom Carrico, my colleague at CSIS, who is a senior fellow in the CSIS International Security Program and also the director of our missile defense project. Guys, welcome to the podcast. We want to talk today about North Korea's burgeoning missile threat. Victor, I want to start with you. You have a foreign affairs article out uh, this week, and you've been talking about this a lot, that while we've all been focused on Ukraine, North Korea has quietly, or even not so quietly, been really creeping up with its missiles. What are they doing right now that is notable? You're, you're absolutely right. We've been very focused, and rightly so, on Ukraine. But in the meantime, in 2022, after a year of really being fairly quiet, the first year of the Biden administration, North Korea has done a lot of missile testing, really starting from January 2020 all the way up to the present day. And there are concerns that they're going to do another, a seventh nuclear test that we've been following very carefully with satellite imagery and have been publishing reports on. So what does it look like they're doing? They're definitely testing a lot more. They have no problem with failing in terms of their testing. So they, they don't mind risking failure in terms of their testing. And it's all because they're trying to test new technology. And so the new technology is in terms of long-range ballistic missiles, ones that can reach the United States, the continental United States, hypersonic speed in terms of the missiles, as well as maneuverable reentry vehicles, all of these designed to you know, pose a credible threat to the security of the, of the U.S. homeland. And part of the purpose of posing that credible threat to the U.S. homeland is to try to undermine the security commitments that the United States makes to its, its extended deterrence commitments to Japan and South Korea. So we're going to get to Tom in a second and talk more about the technology and the United States' ability to deal with that technology that North Korea has developed. But I want to ask you, Victor, why are they doing this and what is it exactly that they're after? So I, I think why they're doing this is uh, obviously they have their own scientific timetable that they're pursuing in terms of this. And I think that drives some of it. But the other aspect is that they know the world is distracted, right? They know the world is distracted by what's going on in Ukraine. They also know that China and Russia are, um, in the past, when North Korea did a nuclear test or a missile test, China and Russia would sign on to UN Security Council resolutions. With the last ICBM test, a long-range Hwasong-15 ballistic missile test, China and Russia did not sign on to new UN Security Council sanctions. In fact, there is a triggering clause in one of the earlier Security Council resolutions that said that provided for a ban on petroleum exports to North Korea if they were to do a ballistic missile test. There, that was a triggering clause in a previous Security Council resolution, and that did not happen, right? Because in part because 
China and Russia have been opposed. So, so we're distracted by Ukraine. China and Russia are not on our side when it comes to North Korea. And in addition to that, China and Russia are not enforcing sanctions when it comes to North Korea, which allows them, you know, to go on the markets and purchase the stuff they need to build this this weapons capability. So, you know, that's that's what they're doing. What ultimately that they want to do, as I said earlier, is that they want to as Kim Jong-un talked about in his Eighth Workers' Party conference speech, they want to develop uh, a capability to really threaten the United States homeland and possibly even learn from what Putin's doing in Ukraine. So does the Biden administration, Victor, have a policy really in place to deal with this? So they have people. They have a special envoy and they have a lot of people in the NSC and in the State Department that have worked on these issues. I've worked with them on the, in the past on the six-party talks, the previous agreement we did with North Korea. They certainly have the people. They certainly have the knowledge and the negotiating experience. Uh, their policy essentially is one that says we're ready to talk to North Korea anytime, anyplace, anywhere. But that's all we really know of the policy. There's never been a, an explicit enumeration of what the policy is. But it doesn't matter in a sense because North Korea is not willing to talk. And there are many who believe that as long as they're on this current path of building their missile capabilities, they're not going to be ready to talk, you know, possibly for the rest of this year while they continue to consolidate this capability. Right. They're not ready to talk, much less declare what they actually have. Yeah, I mean, we're not even close to that, exactly. I mean, the declaration would be sort of the second or third step in a denuclearization process. We're not even at the table with them right now to talk about getting back to talks. Fascinating. So, Victor, this week you have a really terrific piece up on Foreign Affairs website. Uh, it's called North Korea's Missile Message, How Kim's New Nuclear Capabilities Can Up the Ante. Uh, I want to bring Tom into this and talk to both of you about what does this really mean for the United States? Tom, what do you think when it comes to you know what Victor's laid out here and the capabilities that North Korea now reportedly has, what are we to do about it? What can we do about it? Yeah, I think a couple of interesting things are going on here. I think Victor's right that they're using the Ukraine distraction to uh, uh, to their advantage. Uh, as, of course, we know, the Trump administration did, after a lot of back and forth, get the, the North Koreans to stop testing at least their long-range missiles. They kept testing all kinds of short-range missiles under the Trump administration. Uh, but in the past year, they've returned to the to the ICBM stuff. But more than that, uh, we're seeing new types uh, across the board at the lower end, uh, but then also at the uh, they've at least displayed what appears to be a new ICBM recently. But the thing is, on terms of the policy question, uh, hey, everybody, the missile defense review is coming. Look busy uh, until it gets here. Uh, but there's been some positive signs, and I would point to uh, the testimony of Sasha Baker, Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. She testified a couple months ago and gave probably greater insight into the NDS uh, and the nuclear posture of the missile defense review than we've seen released publicly so far. And uh, it gets into the missile defense side of this. But I will say that uh, Sasha Baker's testimony talked about the, the next generation interceptor and talked about some other capabilities and how we may be going forward. I think we're going to see some good continuity on this front. Uh, and I would say some, some positive developments. So can we knock their missiles out of the air right now? I mean, they're just very fundamentally, are we at risk? Yeah, I think we're at actually a relatively good position on the long range ICBM threat. 
Uh, this is what we deployed uh, the ground-based mid-course defense system up in Alaska and California, and frankly put together an entire architecture. This was begun to be deployed in 2004, and we're kind of on our third generation of those interceptors. But as uh, Victor notes, as we talked about earlier, uh, the North Koreans keep deploying new stuff. And that's why over the past couple years, you're seeing the next generation interceptor. Because guess what? This ground-based interceptor, the GBI, that was deployed in 2004, you know, using 1990s technology, that's getting a little old, right? The threats evolved in the past 20-some years. And so it makes sense to, to kind of go for the next generation capability. So what do we think comes next, both for us and for them? Well, I would say that what you're going to see here is a uh, a little bit of a refocusing of the missile defense enterprise. And this makes a whole lot of sense in terms of the fact that the 2018 National Defense Strategy said, hey, we should be focusing on different problem set. We should be focusing on Russia and China. And so in that general neighborhood, uh, this year, we're going to see a whole lot of attention to things like Guam and the def missile defense of Guam. This is the Indo-PACOM commander's number one priority is 360 degree cruise missile, ballistic missile, and probably hypersonic this, that, and the other kind of defense for our, our forward base forces especially. And I think that's the right focus. I think $892 million in, in the 23 budget request just for defense of Guam, that makes a lot of sense. It's not just about the ballistic stuff after all. Uh, you're seeing a lot of increased attention, including from the, the head of NORTHCOM, who's very interested on the whole North Korean ICBM threat. But what's he making the most interesting noise about these days? It's the cruise missile threat. And uh, I think you're probably going to see some reference to that in the national defense strategy when it comes out. The reason I say that is not that it's been released, but it's there's uh, breadcrumbs in the budget <laughs> about why, that it's going to be there. So you're going to see a, a focus on the broader threat spectrum, not just about the big lumbering ballistics of the past. Victor, what do you see is coming next from the North Koreans? I mean, you're talking in this foreign affairs article about how, you know, Kim Jong-un's new nuclear capabilities up the ante. What do you mean by that? So a couple of things. The first is, uh, I haven't read Sasha Baker's testimony, but if the uh, missile defense review is going to focus on sort of this next generation interceptors, that's kind of what we're saying in the article is that sort of the sort of 1990s legacy system that was deployed in 2004 is not going to keep pace with what North Korea is doing. Because as Tom said, they keep rolling out newer and, and newer stuff. The North Koreans are, you know, they're working on a ground-based ICBM program. As Tom mentioned at their last military parade, they rolled out a new missile. We, we, they haven't tested it yet, but a new missile that's concerning that, uh, as well as a sea launch capability, right? They're working on a sea launch capability. And they've talked about a strategic cruise missile, which is, you know, and they're, they're not near that capability, but they've talked about it. And anytime they've talked about something, they've eventually done it. And so, you know, why ground, air, and sea? They're trying to create basically the triad, right? The North Korean version, the, the triad. So I think that's what we're talking about when we say, you know, what is the, the next threat? The other thing I would say is that, again, we're looking at the satellite, commercial satellite imagery, and there's a lot of work going on at the nuclear test site, right, at Pungiri, and a lot of work going on particularly at Tunnel 3, which is the one that we think that they're refurbishing possibly for a seventh nuclear test, which would probably be of a smaller, higher yield nuclear weapon. Yeah, I'll say, I think, you know, I think it's, it's a good thing. The administration is moving forward with this next generation interceptor, but I think it, it very much is going to be a, a multiplicity of things. It's not going to be one silver bullet. It's the right thing to push forward on that, a much more capable interceptor missile. But we do have to think about this, and I think you will 
see the administration thinking and programming uh, on a holistic basis. And, you know, Victor, you, you talk in your article about kind of revisiting boost phase defense. It's a hard problem, although if there's one place in the world we might be able to do it from or for, it's North Korea, just based on the geography. Uh, so we're actually coming out with a missile defense project, coming out with a paper on that in a couple couple months, actually. But it's really the full spectrum, I would say, of missile defeat. It's the attack operations, the ability to thin the herd in all kinds of different ways. On a very bad day, when this might happen, we're not going to sit idly by and just play catch. And so the idea of, of thinning the herd, of hitting things on the ground and doing our very darndest on the scud hunting and early intercept and then the full suite of, of non-kinetic things as well. So that's why it's important not just to kind of count the missiles and the and the interceptors, but really recognizing the United States on that very bad day will bring all kinds of things to bear, and we won't just be reliant upon what's up in those missile fields in Alaska. So what are the key capabilities that we need to watch for coming from North Korea? So, I, you know, as, as I said, I mean, I think it's certainly the ICBM capability. It's their desire to create countermeasures that would sort of throw off our interceptors, as well as the maneuverability of their re vehicles. These are all things that they are aspiring to acquire and what some of the recent testing suggests that they're trying to do. Just to add to the point that Tom said earlier about the full suite of capabilities, the other party we haven't talked about yet is South Korea in all of this. And we got a new government in South Korea that is very focused on the missile threat from North Korea and has talked very openly about acquiring additional missile defense capabilities on the peninsula, whether that is an additional THAAD battery, which was a source of great deal of tension with China in 2017, or early deployment, they have plans to deploy Iron Dome, uh, their own Korean Iron Dome system. Like Israel has. Like Israel has, and, and talked about deploying it four years earlier than they, they normally would. So, um, so I agree, it's like a whole set of things. But the, the point of the article was to say that, you know, these days North Korea does a missile test and like nobody even pays it. I mean, certainly in the U.S. government, they're paying attention, but like people aren't paying attention. No, it's like a blip on the radar. I'm okay with that. You know what? I think I think the uh, in the press and here in the U.S. Sometimes we give them just a little too much free PR and unearned, you know, earned media, as it were. And so, so they I, like they I'm like okay those, with that. They, <laughs> yeah. they like those pieces that Brian Todd does, where he brings you on Tom to uh, well, to, show, to, to show you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, and they certainly like seeing Victor on MSNBC <laughs> and NBC News as well. But but you know, to, to Victor's point too about the South Koreans, I just love the fact that every time North Korea pops something off, that within like I think it's four minutes, uh, the South Koreans usually pop off some of their own offensive missiles, just to remind the Koreans that their indications and warning are good and their readiness is good. And so if the North Koreans decide to do something not very well uh, informed and stupid, uh, that the South Koreans are ready to respond in kind. But the North Koreans, like multiple re-entry vehicles, smaller and lighter nuclear warheads, SLBMs, air launched, they're really going for the full, you know, yeah, I think so. kit and caboodle here. No, right? I think they are. And, and, you know, the North, if anybody is in doubt, the North Korean leader said himself, like, he had an unusually detailed and scientifically based explication. It was sort of like a laundry list of things that they want to do. And, you know, they this was in January do. of 2021 where he d gave the speech. Right. Yeah. And they normally don't. They normally don't. He do doesn't normally do stuff like that. So I think they're pretty clear about what they want to accomplish. And like I said, I think that they're also learning from Ukraine. I mean, I think they're learning from what's happening in Ukraine. The most obvious respect is the idea that 
uh, it just reinforces why they need to pursue these weapons is because, you know, in their mind, right, Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons and, and they were attacked. And so I think that's certainly one reason. But the other is, and the more worrying one is, uh, in the beginning of the conflict, Putin, you know, put out there that uh, nuclear use was not off the table as a way to try to deter NATO countries. And that could be a very bad lesson that North Korea is learning, that the, the notion of first use, right, to try to deter U.S. or Japan or others being involved may be something that they're learning and, and causing them to pursue not just these long-range capabilities, but battlefield-type nuclear weapons capabilities as well. And on the, uh, the lessons learned, I mean, what's one of the, the stars of the Ukraine conflict, not nuclear, but one of the, the weapons being used in great quantities, I think we're up to like 2,000 total missiles fired to date, but, but that's the cruise missiles. And that's where North Korea hasn't done as much, uh, but the couple last year sometime they did do some cruise missile testing. And so I worry about that because those, you know, not very detectable, uh, fly much cooler and all that kind of stuff. And if North Korea can get the, the cruise missile thing, that would be really uh, concerning because then they have as I like to say, the non-nuclear strategic attack threats to come in and suppress. And that's a, that's a very big, big problem. And the, then the other thing on this is you talk about the laundry list. I mean, it's almost like they're, they're advertising. And so what I, would, what I worry about is not that they're going to pick a fight and pop, pop off a nuke and just go crazy. Yes, that's a, that's a big concern. But it's also the, the missile bazaar. You know, and uh, the setting up of transfers, tech transfers. They figure this stuff out, and then they can kind of transfer it to other third actors. They right. They've sold every system they've ever developed. Can I just go back to one thing that we talked about earlier about you know how excited should we get about these when North yeah. Korea does these things? And you know, I I certainly agree. We don't want to give them too much credit. I mean, it, you know, when prior to what they did in 2022, the largest number of missiles they launched in one day actually was. In, on July 3rd, July 4th of 2006, when I was in the government. And we pursued the same policy then, which is like, don't give them a lot of credit. Like, don't let them know you're pushing their button. And I think tactically, that's a good thing to do to, because they like all the attention. The only problem is if you don't have a strategy or a diplomatic strategy attached to that, it just means they're going to do more. <laughs> and eventually, you know, July 2006 was followed by October 2006 when they did their first nuclear test. And at that point, we couldn't like pretend like it didn't happen. But at that time, we also had China and Russia on our side and got the first ever UN Security Council resolution signed on by China and Russia on North Korea. I think that's very well said. I think the last Hwasong 17 ICBM test, though, was accompanied by a very slick montage video uh, with Kim Jong-un rocking around in a leather bomber jacket and all this kind of, you know, choreographed stuff. And yeah, so, he lost some weight. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of PR going on there on their yeah, part, too. Yeah. So finally, I want to ask both of you, Victor, you talk about in the Foreign Affairs article that taking on the North Korean missile threat will require a strong dose of pragmatism. What do you mean by that? So I think we have to be realistic about what we can achieve in a negotiation. You know, I, I think we have to be realistic in two respects. One is, should we sanction North Korea? Absolutely. You know, we should continue to sanction North Korea. Is sanctioning going to stop their testing? History proves no. 
right? We sanction them, we can't deter their testing. So to stop the testing, which we think is important because we don't want them to continue to advance their capabilities, uh, it requires some sort of negotiation. And so, you know, the new Yun government in South Korea has come in and they said denuclearization first and like everybody's in favor of denuclearization. But we've got to be practical about what we can achieve. We're not going to get a John Bolton, Libya-style denuclearization from North Korea. It's just not going to happen, given the size of their, uh, of their program now and their commitment to it. So we just got to bite off pieces of it, and we have to decide which are the pieces that are most important to bite off. And I think one of them, of course, is to reestablish this test ban on, on their longer-range capabilities. You know, I think it's, I think I'm hopeful for when the missile defense review comes out that we're going to see that continuity that I talked about. And I think it's important that we need to stay the course and not make dramatic shifts one way or the other. We've got to have that sustained diplomatic initiative. we also got to have the confidence that there's no one silver bullet. It's going to require some active defenses. It'll require the diplomacy thing. It'll require the attack operations. But that all those things together, no one of these things has to handle the problem in some. We're not going to resolve this overnight by diplomacy as we've, you know, despite every effort. Uh, but likewise, I think the capability capability on the next generation interceptor is so important uh, that I prioritize that even over schedule. And so it'd be, be nice if it gets here sooner than 2028, uh, but I think the, the capability and the reliability and making sure there's competitiveness in that program, I think is even more important. So I say don't rush it, get it right. We're not going to have a, another, a chance and time to, to do it again later. Guys, thanks for this expert analysis. Always great talking to both of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 